thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pilot House Pod. Or check out our website at pilothousepodcast.com. Hi, I'm Sarah Shea. And I'm Strangely Duesberg. Welcome to the Pilot House. A podcast where we watch all the shows we missed the first time around. And try to figure out where the heck they were going with this. So, where did we get this wacky idea for this podcast, strangely? It started with White Collar. Yep. We were hanging out one evening, watching TV, chatting like you do, and strangely said to me, Oh, you've got to watch the pilot of this ridiculous show. I've only seen the pilot. I've never seen a single other episode, but it, it the pilot itself was so notable is <laughs> a nice way of putting it, I think. Yeah, well, I, I mean, in terms of setting up the world of its show, it's a good pilot. Yeah. You know who everybody is. You know what all their motivations are. Mm-hmm. You kind of know what some stories could be with these people. Yeah. And the pilot has a beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. En- enemies become friends. Friends draw closer. <laughs> a villain is caught. All of those things while still leaving open uh, room yeah. for more stories. However, the individual things that happen within that framework are so bizarre yeah. in, at times Bananas. that I, I wanted to share it with somebody. Yeah. So we watched the episode together and, like we do, uh, ended up talking extensively about it afterwards. Because Strange and I are both the kind of people who uh, show our appreciation for things by picking them apart. <laughs> Whether we love it or hate it, if we have any enjoyment of it or appreciation of it, that is how we show it. Uh, we ended up talking about it extensively, and then we said that time-honored phrase so many people have said to a friend of theirs, hey, this would make a good podcast. Yeah, well, it's, it's the kind of thing where it's it's a thing in television that, you know, people write these pilots and they're trying to get the show picked up, and then oftentimes networks will fund just a pilot to see how it all kind of works when the rubber hits the road and you actually have lights and sets and actors and all of the stuff that goes into making an actual hour of television. But, like, a pilot has to do so many things. It doesn't just have to tell a story. It has to set up potentially hundreds or thousands more stories. Yeah, especially in the, the U.S. TV model, every concept has to plausibly, plausibly be able to last for 10 years or something. Like, nobody wants to bankroll a show unless they could see it lasting a really long time, I think. I don't know. I'm not a producer. I what do I know what they about what they think? But it seems like that's the way people think of shows. Right. Or at least it has been for the last yeah. 60 years. We we're, 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 with Netflix and and shows like that we're getting into slightly more of a even more like the UK style where you can have a show that kind of exists in a little chunk. And then if it goes well, maybe we'll have another chunk, but it doesn't have to set up a concept from the get-go that could lead to dizzying numbers of scenarios right well it's 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 a fascinating thing we're getting a little inside baseball here i think maybe not inside baseball neither of us actually makes television but like getting no. a going a little deep dive well I, I did go to television production school for a single semester <laughs> excuse me i've been to broadcasting school <laughs> but that that is part of my desire to explore a bunch of pilots to watch a bunch of pilots because from a writing standpoint you not only have to write a good story with a beginning, middle, and end, but you also have to set up a bunch of characters. You have to 
provide a satisfying conclusion while also leaving open the door for a bunch more stories. And you have to do all of this in a way that is both fresh and interesting enough to be worth making, but also familiar and understandable enough that someone will want to pay to have it made. Yeah. I I, I feel like this particular kind of writing is almost a, an, a dying, not necessarily a dying art, but it's less common now because everything wants to be serialized storytelling. Everything wants to be long, extended stories that eventually will go somewhere. I mean, all you have to do is watch the first episode of any Netflix show. Yeah. And hardly anything has happened by the end of the first episode. Well, people are starting to make shows with the binge-watching mindset in mind. or Because they think, you know, you don't have to make an episode. It's going to hook them enough to show up at the right time on the right day a week later. You just have to hook them enough to not hit the remote while it autoplays the next episode. I mean, obviously, there, there are still people who watch live TV, I've heard. Apparently, they still a, exist. A, a parent, parents, parents. My parents watch <laughs> yeah, live parents, TV. Apparently, parents. But generally, most people are watching it streaming. So you really only have to make it good enough that people will stick around for that second episode. So I think it is definitely a bit of a dying form. But I also really appreciate, I've always kind of found that really interesting, the pilot format. I've said many times in the discussion of this podcast that... One of my favorite things is the way that every line in a pilot has to be embedded and pregnant with background information. Every line can't just be a line of dialogue between two people. It can't just serve the purpose of moving the plot forward or being a funny joke. It has to also set up at least one fact, if not more, about these characters. They have to say, well, hey, just because you're my brother... Don't think you can get away with that kind of stuff you used to get away with when you were in the army or something like that. <laughs> Every line has to be like <laughs> background information. Now you know that about this character. But and, and it's it can be done well and it can be done very cheesily. But I appreciate it regardless. Well, and when it's done well, it's incredible. Oh, yeah. When you see a piece of writing that creates an entire whole brand new universe and introduces new characters and new concepts and everything, and you don't notice that someone is spoon-feeding you a bunch of new information. Oh, absolutely. It's the greatest thing to see. I had never noticed this practice, especially, until somebody told me, long after I had already watched the whole season of Firefly, that that second episode, quote-unquote, of Firefly... The train job. Yeah, was actually the first episode to air... It had to function like a second pilot because the networks were like, oh, that, that pilot is too depressing and too long. Shoot the second episode, but but like make it so it covers all the same information. And like they did it so masterfully that when you do watch the show in the correct order, you don't feel like they're reiterating anything. It's done very well. Yes. And that was the first thing that made me realize, oh, holy crap, they that can be done incredibly well as well as kind of badly the way a lot of sitcoms do it. And that kind of was the first thing that turned me on to that aspect of pilots. Right. It's that idea of economy of storytelling that a a good a good line in a film or a television show or a book is doing more than just people sitting there talking or whatever. It's also telling you something about a character through their actions, through how they hold themselves, how they move. Sure. Yeah. And a good pilot is ideally going to have a a bunch of that on display. I personally like am finding that as I get into doing more writing and, and more sort of storytelling things that getting to watch one of these old, more episodic shows where they would bring in new writers and someone would get to try a crazy thing. I mean, sometimes you get some really awful hours of television 
look at a lot of the second and third seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation. But at mm. the same time, <laughs> sometimes you get really, really good individual episodes of television where for, you know, 30, 45 minutes, it just completely transports you in a way that wouldn't happen, that wouldn't be allowed to happen if you were, everything that you were writing was going towards one big end goal at the end of the season that had to be built to. Yeah, I mean, sometimes filler episodes are annoying, but there's some great filler episodes out there that you don't even want to call them filler episodes because that seems uh, diminishing right. or, or dismissive. But there are episodes out there that if you plucked them out and you watched the rest of the show without that, it wouldn't change anything about whatever overarching story, like Blink from Doctor Who, right? Uh -huh. If you took out Blink, that wouldn't change anything about your understanding of whatever overarching themes they were dealing with that season because the Doctor's barely in it. But it is one of the best, if not the best, episode of Doctor Who Ever. It's it's also a similar thing with X Files that the the ongoing mythology was definitely something that everyone talked about and you know looked forward to revelations about, but when people when you ask almost anybody to list their favorite X Files episodes from back in the day, the ones that they remember, people will say things like, "Oh, the one with the leech boy," or "Oh, the one with all the circus freaks," or uh, "That's actually one Jose Chung's from Outer I've Space." Seen. The circus one. Yeah, the one with all the Jim Rose sideshow performers. is they, they are standalone episodes that were able to bring in really interesting creative voices. Vince Gilligan, who went on to create Breaking Bad, uh, got a lot of his early writing credits on the X-Files, writing more standalone I episodes. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. A lot of people <clears throat> came up through the, the X-Files uh, mill. There. Honestly, one of my favorite new facts is finding out what shit jobs people had before they became like people who are lauded as like visionaries or auteurs and right. they had some crappy job early in their career like i just was re-watching the real ghostbusters cartoon mm -hmm. with my three-year-old nephew because it's on netflix friends and it is a trip but a lot of those episodes are written by j michael straczynski <laughs> there you go <laughs> then or and not his episodes are not better than the other ones or anything it's not like you go, ah, yes, I could see a glimmer of, of what he would become. Nah, nah. <laughs> They're nonsense. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and so many creative writers, like, originally got jobs working as punch-up. Like, they would take someone else's script and just kind of fix fix up a few lines. Yeah. Uh, like, Joss Whedon on Toy Story. Or, I'm totally drawing a blank on who else has done punch-up, but I know there are other ones. There's others. You can just list one example. It's fine. Yeah, like Joss Whedon on Toy Story. Joss Whedon on Speed. Did he actually? Also did punch up work on Speed. <laughs> the film like... Speed, not Joss Whedon on the drug Speed. The film Speed. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were making a like a hilarious combination or if that was true. So no. That's fun. So this particular pilot, we ended up having a long discussion about it after we watched it and also making some commentary while we were watching it. And that kind of got me to thinking about how fun would it be to do a podcast where we would watch pilots and we'd watch a different one every week. So as opposed to kind of the current landscape where in order to be a part of Game of Thrones fandom, you have to have seen 70 other hours of television yeah, to be caught up and to be able to be part of the conversation. If we did a different pilot every episode, maybe fans of that show could come along, but also hopefully fans of this show and people who like looking at how stuff is put together could find a place here. Yeah. And one of the nice things I think about this concept is it kind of gives us license to watch a lot of shows that 
we don't think we would necessarily want to watch. I don't know. There's a lot of shows that I've heard of and I've never watched and I have access to them now through Netflix, but I've not watched them because I'm like, I don't think I'm going to want to watch all of that show. But now we can watch a single episode of a show for the podcast and maybe some of them will turn out to be better than we would have thought and we'll end up watching more. It's just until we started this podcast, it never would have occurred to me to just watch the pilot and see how it is. I always feel like if I'm not interested in watching this show, I'm not even going to bother to give it a try. It's not my time is too precious. (laughs) Yeah, I also like that idea. It's something that I think a lot of people like to think of themselves as being capable of as being capable of looking beyond their comfort zone and finding something outside of their normal wheelhouse to explore and to to sort of broaden their horizons. But to do that in practice takes a lot of work. And also then if it's terrible, you've just spent 45 minutes, an hour, or an hour and 20 minutes in the case of some pilots from the 80s. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Got something in my throat. <clears throat> Got a little um, Seagram's in my throat. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know, that that you've spent all this time with something that ended up not being very good. And so that was kind of also a secret motivation for me that if we have discussion and we talk about its good qualities and its flaws in something like a podcast, then I'm I'm sort of getting to be creative while also, you know, digging through the pile of muck. Yeah. <laughs> White collar. So... <laughs> I found this show because I love con men stories. And according to the little blurb on Netflix, the main character of the show is a con man who escapes from jail. There wasn't really a lot of conning going on in this show. Yeah, but distressingly little con artistry going on in the first episode, at least. He struck me as a lot more of a white collar criminal who happened to have a bit of the, the flair of a con man. Yeah. Which I guess that's in the title. So there there you go. There you go. I mean, I guess they do imply that his background is involves a lot of con stuff and they show him doing some con stuff in the in the early part. But it's like it's just yeah, the it turns into a pretty like more of a classic FBI procedural structure after that and we don't hopefully we get to see a little more of the of the con uh, artist funnery later on in the show con artist funnery thank you thank you i just uh, look i'm just all i'm saying is i think ricky J would not be super impressed with the show yeah well clearly he was not invited to consult he was not consulted <laughs> so the opening scene is neil who is apparently the greatest criminal of all time genius con man criminal mastermind he escapes from prison by shaving putting on a prison guard uniform and walking out the front door yeah <laughs> He finds $3 in the car that he steals, and he uses that $3 to buy a yellow jacket so that he looks like the uh, valet parking dudes. Which, honestly, I gotta say right off the bat, they indicate later that he did his research to find out that these valet guys wear yellow jackets. But then he still managed to find a perfectly shaded bright yellow windbreaker at, like, someone who's just selling random crap on the street. He doesn't go to a store. It's not like he researched the store he could buy them at. Right. He found one from a guy on the street who's like, $5, man. He goes, I'll give you three. <laughs> then he uses uh, his, his new... His genius con man skills yes. extend to haggling with someone selling junk on the street. And it, being able to find perfectly matching outfits for yeah. cheap. I, I just, I hate it when things are absolutely chance, but the show indicates like, see how good he is? It's that, no. 
But anyway, he steals a car by posing as a valet, which that part was not an essential part of his escape. I want to point out that was him having fun. Yeah, that was. a. He knows how to hotwire a car and he had a box truck like a van. I think he did that so that he left the car that he stole from the prison at the airport so they would think he was flying away. It was like, oh, maybe they don't indicate that. But no, it's not indicated. (laughs) I think we're just meant to know that he is the best at everything. Yeah, they just wanted to show him. They wanted a fun montage. And that's how it's presented. It's a fun montage where we kind of are following and trying to figure out what he's doing as he's going. Right. So he escapes from prison. And then we see our uh, other hero. Uh, FBI Special Agent Peter Burke. Who's a little older, a little haggard. A little little, wiser. Yeah. Kind of got a dad vibe. Oh, super dad vibe. (laughs) Incredible dad vibe. Peter Burke is played by Tim Decay, who was one of the major things that drew me to the show in the first place. Uh, Oh, really? Tim Decay was a main character on the show Carnival on HBO back in the early 2000s. I've always wanted to watch that show. It's a fantastic show, yeah. and Tim Decay is incredible on it. He yeah. has a he has a lot of range. So I thought, well, if this guy's in some goofy FBI procedural thing with con men, sold. Yeah. So Peter Burke and all of his agents are trying to break into a safe, which will lead them to a famous forger called the Flying Dutchman, um, and they're I trying to arrest just, him. Uh, not to correct you, but I believe he's just called the Dutchman. Oh, the Dutchman? They just call him the Dutchman. Well, I want him to be flying. I mean, yeah. that's the classic name. I'm sorry, the you guys. Dutchman. I'm sorry if you got your hopes up. The art forger in the show cannot fly. He's, He's not super right. powered. He's named after the supernatural legend of the Flying Dutchman. Yeah. But they just call him the Dutchman. So they've followed all this evidence and it's led them to a bank vault and they're trying to open the safe and... They're all very excited because they are succeeding at opening the safe. You get the vibe from the other people in the room. They're like, yes, finally, we've we've beat him. We managed to open his safe. And the second before, the guy who's just cracked the, the combination opens the safe. We see our clever little hero, Peter, go, wait a minute. And he thinks about the numbers. Four, one, three. Yeah. I think it's two, three, four. Anyway. The two, three. You're right. It's two... Two, two, one, one four. four. Two, one, this four. Is, this is important. We're not getting bogged down in a random detail. But he suddenly goes, wait, but he's too late. The guy has already opened it. There's an explosion and all, all of the... the stuff inside was destroyed. Yeah. Inside are a bunch of little red filaments. They sort of look like hair, but like maybe they're, a ribbon. They're all over everyone's clothing and they're going, what the hell is this stuff? But this is an important moment because... We learned something about Peter in this scene. The pilot sets up that he goes, I told you to stop and you didn't wait. Which, like, give the guy a break. You said wait as he was pulling the door open already. But he says, now all of our evidence is destroyed. And someone asks, well, how did you know it was going to blow? And he said, what was the code? Two, one, four. Look at your phones. Which, what a dated reference right there. Everybody pulls out their flip phones and looks like the numbered buttons and he says what does it spell and they go oh fbi (laughs) so there's sort of a bit of a cat and mouse yeah we get a little hint about peter that he's clever he's one step ahead of everybody else there's a nice moment where he's mad that no one else thought of it and he goes how many of you went to harvard and And a bunch bunch of of them all very sheepishly raise their hands including some of the older guys in the room too like not just the young hotshots and he's like don't raise your hands anyway he's presented to us now as a clever guy he thinks outside the box he's maybe one step ahead of the rest of the people in his department before he can do anything else to investigate this explosion or the possible evidence 
another agent comes running up to him and says, you got to come right now. Neil Caffrey just escaped from Supermax prison. Bum, Neil. Bum, bum. Yeah. <laughs> so then we find out that Peter Burke was the one who caught Neil the first time. Yeah. The only person who has ever caught him. Ooh. Big deal. So Peter goes to the prison, talks to the prison guards, figures out how Neil escaped, kind of gives the prison guards a bunch of shit for... Yo, it gives the warden a real hard time. He's yeah. like, oh, you're the one who dropped the ball. Yeah. And the guy's like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> He's like, hey, all I know is I spent three years of my life, exposition drop, chasing this guy, and you let him walk straight out the front door. And then, of course, he gets another dig in at the warden because he says, well, where do you get the... The He's, uniform. Yeah. And someone says, you ordered it from the internet. And he says, with what credit card? And the warden sheepishly says, yeah, I use my wife's American Express. Which, how do you get that from your wife, because buddy? Because he's the best, most magical criminal ever. Yeah, he somehow managed to get a, a uniform that looked exactly like the uniform. I mean, and nobody went like, oh, hey, are you a new guy or nothing? Nobody noticed that he was only wearing the shirt and pants. He didn't have the belt with a, the, like a flashlight and a nightstick or whatever they have on their belts. Anyway, he's so, very clever, you guys. Pretty quickly, Peter Burke runs down all of the particulars of Neil's escape and figures out the exact date Neil decided to escape, which was when he started growing out the beard that he shaved off for his disguise. Right, because this is everyone is very surprised that he escaped because he ran with three weeks left on a four-year sentence. That's what's odd. He was like a, basically a model prisoner mm -hmm. for several years. And then with just a few weeks to go or months to go, I can't remember what they said. He mm -hmm. had very little time to go. He suddenly bolts. So, you know, Peter knows there must have been something that caused him to leave. So he figures out when he started growing out the beard, which helped him disguise himself because he shaved off the beard, which made him look slightly different, even though he'd yeah. looked different. It's not like people in the prison didn't know what he looked like without a beard. Yeah, it's, it, uh, yeah. It's a bit iffy, but I guess it was just meant to be enough to throw people off. So when Peter figures out when Neil decided to hatch his escape plan, he checks the visitor records and finds out that Neil had a visitor that day. The same woman who visited him once a week for the entire previous of his prison sentence. And did not visit him again after that day. It was Neil's girlfriend. Kate Moreau. Ooh. Because French last names are romantic. I feel like there is a trend of like women who are like barely a character and they're just a romantic interest having a French last name. I think that's a thing. I cannot present any examples in this moment, but I think it's a thing. So at this point in the show, I was actually thinking, oh, okay, so this whole show is going to be Catch Me If You Can. It's going to be about Peter and Neil in a game of cat and mouse. That's going to be the whole first season at least. But instead, the very next scene, he goes, well, let's find this Kate. And they go to her apartment and there's Neil. And he's sitting there and he's holding an old bottle of wine. Empty bottle of wine. In an empty apartment. And he's just sitting there. Peter walks in alone, which I think was indicated to show us something about the rapport he feels that he has with Neil. Right. So they talk for a moment and Peter says, why'd you break out? Was it because of her? And Neil says, she's gone. I missed her by two days. Yeah. And it's implied that after several years of waiting for him, she changed her mind and decided she was out. And told him that the day she went to visit him in the prison. And that's why he felt he had to escape. He could not wait any longer than possible. And they do establish it only took him a month and a half to set up this escape, which is impressive. 
If I could grow an escape-worthy beard in six weeks, I totally would. Yeah, it was pretty scraggly, to be fair. It wasn't. It wasn't great, but it was long. Yeah, it was quite it long. Was, it was long. Anyway, he at this point is not. He's not trying to run. He has given up. They need, and Peter even says they're going to give you another four years for this. And he says, "I don't care." Clearly, all his reason for escaping was to try and change this woman's mind or catch her before she actually left yeah. and moved to another state or another country and a new, new life. And he knows for sure she's left him because she left the wine bottle behind, which was a sentimental object between the two of them. Yeah, which he explains later. So then Peter says the building's surrounded. And Neil, still with a little bit of his con man uh, sharpness remaining, looks like he's doing a little mental math and says, uh, how many guys do you think there are out there? And Peter goes, ah, between uh, the FBI and the local police and this and that, all of them. <laughs> It's a, cl- it's a fun moment, and it's him joking with Neil, which yeah. not only shows that he's pretty confident he's got him this time, and also that they have a bit of a rapport. They do. It, it's, it's something that kind of happens a few times through the episode, so that when they kind of end on sort of a begrudging friendship, you almost can feel that they've been building to that moment for a long time, which is yeah. a great bit of performance on the part of the two actors. Yeah, I could have done with a little more of a build but they, I've seen it done worse, definitely, mm-hmm. in other shows. We forgot to mention there is a scene earlier before he catches Neil again that where he's talking to his gorgeous younger wife. Come on, television, really? Played by Tiffany Amber Tyson. Remembered by many as Kellyanne Kapowski from Saved by the Bell. And who still looks, I guess, I don't know. They could be the same age for all I know, but she's definitely, because of Hollywood being Hollywood, she's done a lot more to keep herself looking young. So Yes. And during that conversation where she's like, oh, Neil Caffrey again, she's obviously heard many stories about him. And he addresses, he says, well, he's smart. You know, I like smart. So he kind of admits a begrudging fondness for this guy, even though he's pissed off that he escaped, even though he's going to do everything in his power to catch him, mm-hmm. he's got a kind of a fondness for the guy. Right. Just before Neil gets hauled off back to jail, he looks at Peter's jacket and reaches out and pulls another one of the red fiber ribbon somethings off of Peter's jacket and says, do you know what this is? And Peter says, no, nobody <laughs> no knows idea. what it is. <laughs> and Neil says, what's it worth to you if I tell you what it is? Is it worth a meeting? If I tell you what it is right now, will you meet me in one week at the prison? Peter's a little reluctant, but... All he's saying is, I will tell you right now, you meet me in one week. Peter doesn't even necessarily agree. And Neil... I I think he just says, tell me. Yeah. And Neil Neil says, says, it's a security fiber from the new Canadian $100 bill. And, you know, then everybody comes in and they haul him away. And he says, one week from today. And the great thing about that scene that I actually really liked was that he doesn't try to leverage that information too much. All he asks for is a meeting. And he doesn't say... Come meet me at the prison in a week and I'll tell you what this is. He doesn't make him promise to anything. He just says, look, I'll tell you this right now. So he obviously has a certain amount of respect for Peter as well. Instead of trying to like, oh, what can I get? What can I get from you? He just says, look, I just want a meeting. Yeah, it's it is. It's a fun little moment. And it also kind of, I think, shows that even though Neil is the king of whimsical fuckery, he still does <laughs> have like some appreciation and understanding of the reality around him. Yeah. Which was a good, I think, wrinkle to add to that character because someone can only be a pile of whimsical fuckery for so long before you actually need to have a deeper character happening. He doesn't say, if I tell you what this is, will you, like, 
Set me lighten, free. Lighten my sentence. Get me back to my old sentence where I get off in a couple of weeks or whatever. Like, he knows that's not on the yeah. table. But he does say, just give me a meeting. So then Peter does decide to go meet him. And in the meeting, we see that Neil has had some time to better flesh out the idea that was obviously percolating in his brain that day in that empty apartment, which is he's done his research that there's legal precedent for the FBI getting his sentence Basically, I don't know if commuted is the right word for this situation. Essentially, if he works as a consultant for the FBI, he can serve out his sentence on the outside consulting with the FBI. Yeah. And they'll, you know, he'll be under the FBI's, well, shit with the word. Anyway, he will be under control of the FBI. They will have a ankle bracelet on him so he can't run off with the GPS and everything. So he can't escape. And he presents it as, look, I'm not doing this to try to escape or try to get back to my old life. Look, I'll have an ankle bracelet. I'll be working for you. But I will help you catch the Dutchman. Yeah. Burke knows Neil really well. And he just says, forget about it. This is, this is no way. You're trying to pull some No way. You're working an angle. No way. Unfortunately for Burke, his bosses say, we're going to try this out. Because the, the information that Neil gave them about the little fiber from the $100 bill was correct, spot on information. And not only was it correct, it's such classified and recent information that now the FBI has the Canadian police breathing down their neck saying, um, excuse me, how did you guys find out about our security fibers? And we, of course, immediately imagined like a couple of Mounties riding moose parked outside the FBI office is like, uh, excuse me, if it's not too much trouble, eh, we'd like to ask you some questions about how you found out about our security stuff, eh? Yeah, you hosers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Canada, we love you. So, Neil gets let out. He has the ankle bracelet on him. Burke drives Neil to a sort of a flea bag motel kind of a Incredibly tawdry boarding house type yeah, scenario. The, the like grossest boarding house you ever did see. Yeah. They they only show us a few minutes in the lobby and they have to convey to us that this is a very uh, unpleasant scenario that Neil does not want to be in. And Peter explains, look, it costs $700 a month to the government to house you inside so that's how much it costs to house you outside. And this is the best you can get for that money, which in New York, are they in New York? Yeah, New York City. <laughs> Fair enough. $700 a month is uh, he not says, too much. Your ankle bracelet can go anywhere within two miles. If you can find something better within that radius for that price, take it. <laughs> and also he says, you know, well, okay, well, I don't have anything. I've got the clothes on, on my back. And he says, well, there's a thrift store on the corner. Go, you know, have fun. So Neil goes down to the thrift store. And and in another moment that is almost entirely chance and not actually due to any skill on Neil's part. He doesn't do anything in this scene. He just is at the right place at the right time. He's barely walked in and in struts the gorgeous and effervescent Diane Carroll in the character of June, a recent widow who is very rich. She's wearing some very fancy clothes and her hair's all did and everything's very nice. And she is bringing in some suits to donate. I'd like to to donate these. And Neil immediately uh, recognizes them as nice suits. 
And so he walks up and goes, oh, pardon me, may I? And, you know, impresses her by recognizing the name of the designer who is made the suit. Is Dior? Suits. No, Devor. Devor? Is that a real? No, Dior is real. Is Devor real? I have no idea. I'm going to assume they made him This up is not a fashion show. podcast. No. This is a television podcast. Really? Oh, strangely. I thought you were, like, really uh, high on the... I canceled my Vanity Fair subscription. <laughs> I just... I'm going to put Taylor Swift on the cover. I don't want to read it. <laughs> At any rate... She's impressed that this handsome young man uh, knows who Cy DeVore is and is impressed that her husband won the suit from Cy in a poker game. And she says, I used to play poker too. And they have a fun little moment. And she's obviously quite taken with him. Yeah, he displays very quickly an appreciation for for her world and her way of seeing things. Yeah, but it feels perfectly natural. Nothing about his behavior in that scene is out of character for him for the rest of the episode. So it doesn't feel like a scene in which we are learning what a good con man he is. It absolutely feels like just another scene where he stumbles ass first into a really good situation. Yeah. And also, there, there's one, there's one other line where the the he asks her if she lives nearby, and she says, "Not far. The neighborhood isn't what it, what it used to be." She oh, it's it's dripping with classism. I I love the character, but she says, "Yeah, we live not far away. Oh, we've lived there for years. The neighborhood was, let's say, it used to be nicer." Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. But. It, but you can tell that I think one of the things that instantly draws her to Neil is the fact that he appreciates that sort of gone era that she's whimsical for where, you know, the rich ladies wear their furs out to the theater. Or yeah. And he puts on a jacket and she goes, oh, my husband Byron used to wear that suit every time he took me out dancing. And she's obviously wistful for a bygone era. And here comes this handsome man who perfectly fits into her husband's old 60s Rat Pack designer suits. And yeah, he puts on this ridiculous little trilby hat that she's brought. And she's like, oh, it's nice to meet a young person who appreciates old things or whatever. And <laughs> the funny thing about it is that you would not have to change a single word, a single glance, a single line reading from that scene. And the next scene could have been her taking him home in the oh, euphemistic way. Yeah. And it would have not read as odd at all. Yeah, it is really. Where do you live? Not far. Not far. Is it within two miles? <laughs> That's about how long I can wait. Uh, it's it's very suggestive. But so no, that does not pan out at all. It's not the, their relationship the, is not weird after that. The one last piece of information in the scene is she says, uh, "Yes, I have a whole room full of suits like these." Well, it's oh, actually yeah, a guest oh. room. It's been empty for a long time. Yeah. Well, actually, not a closet. It's a guest room. But I've just used it for storage for years. How convenient that I mentioned I have this guest room that I'm just really not using and it's just sitting there empty. Which is that, that's that example of a very on-the-nose version of that lines having sort of multiple purposes where she's setting up a space in her home, she's setting up that she's lonely and kind of bored. Yeah. Um, she's setting up that there are lots of fun outfits for Captain Whimsical Fuckery to wear throughout yeah. the rest of the episode and presumably series yeah. waiting at this house. So... We cut to the next morning. Burke shows up at the Fleabag uh, apartments to pick up Neil to go work the case. And Neil is gone. Yeah. But he's left. He's left him a note 
which says, I have moved 1.6 miles. And the address. And the address. So Burke drives over there and he gets out of his car and he's like, you've got to be kidding. This is this beautiful townhouse. Gorgeous. It is a mansion in the yes. middle of New York City. It is gorgeous and huge. It is a very old house. Like millions of dollars. I believe it is lavender in color. <laughs> the lavender palace. So uh, Bert goes inside. A maid lets him in. And he goes, I think I might have the wrong address. And instead, June says, oh, you must be Peter. Neil told me all about you. And he's he does the bit where he says... I don't know what he told you, lady, but that he doesn't say call her lady. I don't know what he told you, but that's not uh, jewelry on his uh, ankle, you know. He's a felon. And without missing a beat, she says, so is Byron. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, so is my husband. Big deal. I, I do not care. And honestly, I like that part of her character that she wasn't like, oh, he just seems like such a nice boy. I want to help him. He's just, he made some mistakes, but I can help him improve. She's just like... Eh, he's a felon. Big deal. So is my husband. I kind of like that. Yeah, and the the implication that I get from that interaction is that Neil actually told her. Like, yeah. in the course of their conversation, he told her everything. Yeah. He was honest with her. And she was like, cool. And I like that about her character. He's not pulling one over on some lonely old lady. She's She knows the lay of the land. And she's like, eh, that's fine. Yeah. I like, I like having him around. He's nice <laughs> to look at. He helps around the house. Whatever. So then we go to their gorgeous rooftop patio with a beautiful view of the city where Neil is sitting at a little cafe table in like a silk robe, drinking coffee and reading the newspaper. And Peter is like, this is typical. <laughs> he, just, you. he says all but you little shit. And he's, he does say, he's, Neil says, like, hey, you told me if I could find someplace better for the same money that I should take it. And he's like, oh, so you're you're getting all of this for 700 a month. And he's like, well, I help out around the house, you know, do some chores. Walk the dog, wash the d jag. Wash keep the an, jag. Wash yeah. the jag. Keep an eye on the granddaughter. No, no. He specifically says, I just want to make it clear. The line is, she has me watch her granddaughter. And Peter laughs and says, oh, she's got you on babysitting duty? And then immediately, in a catwalk fashion scene... With, like, a breeze that with appears With a breeze out of that appears out of nowhere to blow her hair and some music in the background, a gorgeous woman in a diaphanous robe saunters past them seductively and settles down on a divan on the rooftop. And he's like, oh, that's the granddaughter? And she just smirks at him. She doesn't get any lines or a name, this granddaughter. Just want <laughs> and, to point out. And then, uh, so Peter, yeah, Peter says, oh, that's the granddaughter. And Neil goes, she, she's an art student. Which, I mean, uh, watch her granddaughter? Excuse me. In what context does that sentence make sense? You can't just set up a scenario and then knock it down unless it makes sense later. And she has me watch her granddaughter doesn't make sense if the granddaughter is a grown-ass woman. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was very annoying. Everything about this granddaughter being in the show is annoying. And we it seems, from what we've looked up online, she disappears from the show, which is almost more infuriating that they just were like, yeah, never mind, we don't need the granddaughter. Which is an example of the kind of retooling that often, I think, happens between a pilot and the regular run of the series. Sure, but sometimes they chuck a character or recast between a pilot right. and the run of the show. But guess what? This was never a character. She was a set piece. She is referred to twice more in the episode, 
always as the granddaughter, and she is referred to as if she's an amenity of the house, like a piece of furniture, like a jag that he's allowed to drive. It's, I, I got, you know, TV handles women characters poorly. Right, we all know this. This is above and beyond. It is, it, it is one of the elements of this show that made me want to put it in front of someone else just to see if someone else reacted as confusedly to this thing yeah. as I did. Because it's just like, she gets this really like overdone shot of her appearing and like walking in. Her, it's her the, entrance is big. The only thing in the episode that's in slow motion is her walking out onto the deck. Only thing. Yeah, but honestly, you say, you bring up the point about them recasting and sometimes between a pilot and the rest of the show. I don't think that was ever the intention here. I don't think that's what happened. It's not that they went, ah, we don't need the granddaughter. They never give her a name and she has no lines. And it's awkward for her not to say anything in that scene. And when you have someone in a scene and they awkwardly have no lines, it's because they didn't want to pay that actor more for that day. So they clearly never intended her to be part of the regular cast. I think. That's my call on it. Or at least by the time the pilot aired, anything that she had done or had been done with her in the episode was cut. Well, that's the thing. is they had ever recorded her saying lines, even if they cut it, they'd still have to pay her more. Right. I think, it's my opinion, that they never intended it. She was just to set up the house as a real sweet deal. There's this hot chick around, too. Bonus. That's my read on it, but I could be wrong. In any case, it's a very confusing bit of flim-flam that happens. Yeah. Not just for us, also for Peter Burke. He can't seem to get over it for the rest of the episode. And although he has a nice moment, actually, where he delivers a piece of information with a clarity that the rest of the episode doesn't often get, which is he's frustrated that that Neil has gotten himself into this sweet situation. And he says, well, hey, look, you know, I've been working hard at my job for decades and, you know, I don't live in a beautiful house with a view and a 22-year-old art student, right, like she's a piece of furniture. But he's angry and Neil says like, well, you know, that's not my fault. You know, show me the rule that I broke and I'll take myself back to prison. And then Peter, unable to point out the specific rule, actually says what really bothers him. Well, he comes close to speaking clearly about it. He says, it's this kind of little scheme, the something for nothing scheme that leads to the bigger scams that got you put away in the first place. And I think that is one of the problems he has with Neil is that he has the problem of everything's comes easy to this guy, which we have all felt that way about somebody else. I work hard at the same kind of thing, and this guy gets the things I want and gets it easier. That's an easy thing to feel for anybody. But the additional problem he has with Neil specifically is that he knows that it's this kind of little playing the rules fast and loose. Well, I didn't technically break any rules, but I somehow managed to get myself in this sweet situation, always trying to improve his life without technically breaking the rules is what eventually leads him to trying to improve his life by literally breaking the rules, breaking the law, and getting himself in prison. Right. So we've got a little statement of the character from Peter about Neil. Which, for a pilot, to have this be the central point of friction between them, it's not that one's a cop and one's a crook. It's not that, you know, they're necessarily adversaries against each other. It's that one is someone who just seems to stumble ass first into success all the time until he doesn't and then breaks the rules to make it happen. Yeah. And the other one is someone who's very rules oriented, but it felt like a much more earned and like, like you said, we all feel that feeling. It's a much more identifiable with thing than just someone who's a straight laced, always following the rules yeah. stereotype. Yeah. It's- they, they play with that throughout the episode um, where 
Neil says, well, why can't we just do this? And Peter goes, oh, cause we have to follow the freaking law, but it actually makes sense. It's not him going, well, you can't cause it's against the rules. He actually points out, well, if we do that, then we won't actually be able to convict the guy because, you know, we will have contaminated our evidence or whatever. So Neil and Peter go off to do more investigating on the case. There's a new lead. Uh, they found that the Dutchman said something about Snow White in a, a communique that was translated or decrypted or something. And it has led them to the airport where a rare bookseller has been stopped for bringing into the country 200 copies of Snow White in Spanish printed in the 1940s. In Madrid and of no particular value. That's the thing. Right. They're not first editions. They're not especially rare. They're kind well, of There's old, hundreds of them. But there's hundreds of them in great condition. And they're going, well, why is he bringing so many of them? They can't be that rare if he managed to bring 200 of them back. Why would he want them? So they're met at the airport by Diana. Right. Who is uh, Peter's proby agent so a proba probationary agent so she's kind of a new agent who's working under him and learning the ropes and things yeah and he points out she's very good at her job so don't mess with her and of course neil tries to flirt with her she says i like your hat is ridiculous trilby, trilby hat and he's you know making eyes at her because she's a gorgeous young woman in fact she kind of looks a little bit like a young diane carroll so i wonder if they named her diana as a reference to that or if it was just a fun coincidence but uh, as she walks away, he says, like, leave her alone. And Neil's like, ah, come on, it's harmless flirting. It's like a dance. And he says, you know, no, there's no dancing for you. You're not on, you're you're not not on, on her, her dance, dance card. card. And he goes, come on, she liked the hat. And he goes, she'd rather be wearing the hat. Which is not a euphemism for being gay, but Neil immediately goes, oh. Oh. <laughs> and then just in case we, the audience, didn't, quite understand that a scene later we see her flirting with a female tsa agent yeah and like laughing and touching her arm and <laughs> we don't hear the dialogue so we don't know that they're flirting but they're laughing and and neil's watching going huh okay yeah i got it and it's a little bit like all right i'm stoked to find out there's a gay character on the show but also she'd rather be wearing the hat really <laughs> maybe she's got a thing for hats yeah some people just like hats okay come on guy <laughs> anyway so the man who was trying to bring in the copies of Snow White is being held in a holding area. Peter goes in to try to question him. They have a little bit of fun banter, but the something seems a little off. But before Peter can really question him, the man's lawyer arrives, kicks Peter out of the room. Peter goes down the hall and starts complaining about how did the lawyer get here so fast? And then one of the TSA agents goes, well, he didn't call anybody. And he goes, well, then how did his lawyer know? <gasps> and they rush back into the room and there's the bookseller with a syringe in his neck. Very professional killer. Dead. He's dead. So they, you know, oh, I didn't frisk the lawyer and they're freaking out. But obviously this guy was killed for his information. So now they've got a dead bookseller, a crap ton of children's books from 1944. And they have no idea why he would want the books however pretty quickly i feel like neil presents the paper yeah as every, what he wants every book every copy of the book has uh a single uh folio so two sheets uh it's about 12 inches by 18 inches with nothing printed on it the end papers of the book so it's two blank sheets of paper from 1941 or that whatever. Together you fold out and create a nice big sheet mm -hmm. that is genuine 
paper that would have been used in Madrid in 1944, I think they say. Something like so that. From the they 40s. go, this is what, because they know he's a forger. They've got right. that information. So he goes, obviously, and Neil, it is established, has done, a, a, dabbled in a bit of forgery. So he knows, yeah, this is the, what he would want. He needs this paper. Right. So so then they're checking through the effects of the rare bookseller and they find out that he was at the National Archives just before he went on his trip to Spain to buy all these books. And we get an outside establishing shot of... The New York Public Library. Not the National Archives. So they go in there. There is a betweeted man with a bow tie who shows them the thing that the rare bookseller was looking at, the document he requested a viewing of. It is a war bond from the Second World War, from Spain, Spanish war bond uh, that I think is a thousand dollars. Yeah, worth a thousand whatevers. They say it was issued by the U.S., so I think it was a thousand dollars. It was intended to support Spain. Yes. At any rate, uh, this thing is very rare, they say. Um, Very few of them were ever actually redeemed. And this one, he says, is the only surviving copy. But they say... That there are boxes of them uh, stored away in caves in Spain that have never been found. Oh, wouldn't it be exciting if somebody found them? And we yes. begin to see what ah. the scam is. So Peter puts that together pretty quickly and goes, ah, so they're going to make <clears throat> these fake bonds. The guy says, you know, this is the only surviving copy. And Neil says, too bad it's a forgery. Yes. And the guy says, no, 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 no. That can't be possible. This has been here. Since 1952. And Neil says, it's been here less than a week. Because what they realize happened is the rare bookseller did a little switcheroo and stole the real copy that they had at the archives and replaced it with the forgery, which was apparently good enough. To fool the National Archives, but not to fool Neil, who can tell that the ink still hasn't completely dried and you can smell it. So now they've got a new piece of information, but they still don't know why would he steal this bond and replace it with a forgery and then take the real one right also they established he's got hundreds of pieces of this paper so you know what are they doing with all of that paper so this is where neil starts to earn his keep because he figures out that these bonds are still negotiable yes there's no expiration date on them yeah and he says well if they were found in those caves that the guy in tweed mentioned what would they do to verify that they were real they'd come compare them to the one in the national archives right and each bond at the appreciation of from the original price of one thousand dollars is worth a quarter of a million dollars yeah and figuring by the number of sheets of paper they know he has they're talking about a total of, I think he says, $150 million. Right. So there's potentially a lot of money on the line here yeah. for the Dutchman to forge. Yeah. And he's got his forgery in place at the National Archives. Well, they've already figured out it's a forgery, so he won't be able to get away with his scam, but they still have to figure out who it is and try to catch him. Then after that little meeting, Peter's driving Neil home, and they're having a little chat about Peter's wife, Elizabeth who Tiffany Amber Tyson, as we mentioned. Yes. Uh, uh, excuse me. Professionally, she is now known as just Tiffany Tyson. She dropped the amber when she stopped being a teen heartthrob. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that's legit. Uh, they're having a little chat about her, and there's this ridiculous moment where 
Neil says, you got any plans for the weekend? And Peter says, yeah, going to a baseball game. And Neil's like, uh, with Elizabeth, your wife? And he goes, yeah, isn't that cool? She's into sports. Isn't that awesome? They're talking about her like, they're a couple of teenage boys who've never had a girlfriend before. And they're like, a girl who likes sports? What? He's not talking about her like a woman he's been married to for 10 years, they establish in the show. It's, it's bad dialogue. Let's leave it at that. In the midst <clears throat> of this conversation, Neil brings up that... It's Peter's anniversary coming up soon. Which, of course, Neil would know. Uh, Peter suddenly goes, shit, he's forgotten completely while wrapped up in this case. And he's mad at himself. He's like, I see things in cases coming, you know, a mile away, but this always sneaks up on me. And he goes, it's fine. You got a couple of days. He goes, no, it's really not fine because I did this last year and I promised her I'd make it up to her this year. I can't just buy her dinner and have a romp in the sheets. You know, it's got to be something really special. So Neil goes, that's cool. Let's problem solve, you know? What's she into? Worst line in the entire episode, possibly? Peter goes, what, like, sexually? Sexually? Neil goes, ew, (laughs) Ew, no. No, dad. (laughs) (laughs) I don't need to hear that. And goes, no, like, what makes you feel alive? Which is a little overly poetic for the conversation. Instead of Peter thinking about the woman he's been married to for 10 years and going... Oh, she likes jazz. She likes, you know, I don't know. She likes Michael Bublé. She likes going to the beach. Instead of throwing out some even surface level observations about this woman, which then Neil could have followed up with, no, man, like what's, what's really, what's she all about? What's in her brain? Instead, he just goes, I'm drawing a blank. This man can't think of a single thing his wife of a decade is interested in at all. Aside from baseball the one thing he knows about his wife is she likes baseball which he also likes and he values that about her honestly that would make me hate this character if it wasn't so out of if you'll pardon the expression left field (laughs) you're welcome if if that was representative of peter's character overall i would hate it but it's not so i just hate that moment i just hate the scene yeah it it's it's really awkward and it's a, it feels like a very ham-fisted way to set up a, a C plot that has nothing to do with the investigation. Nothing. So you and have the A plot of the forgeries, the Dutchman, the B plot Which of, we're about to approach. Right, the B plot of Neil investigating where Kate went. Yeah. And then the C plot of, I don't know my wife very well. And Neil has to help me, which will make us bond further. That's the only purpose that it serves. So we're going to skip over that in this recap. But for the rest of the episode, anytime Neil and Peter are alone together, they reference this ridiculous thing. And he's like, I don't know if she has an Amazon order for candles. Anyway, we're not going to talk about it. It's terrible. So then Neil returns to June's house. And he walks in like he owns the place, uh, just kind of throws his hat off to the side, gets in there, and then sees someone sitting in the shadows at the dining room table. He, he senses something, it a seems presence. like, and then walks in and it's, oh, is it going to be somebody dangerous? And then he goes, oh, come on, man. You can't hide in the shadows like that. What the hell? What is this, a movie or something? He does one of those lines. And it is revealed that the guy hiding in the shadows when they turn to the light is an old friend of his from the criminal world who is known as Moz in this episode. Willie Garson. Is he He's, uh, noticeable to you? I... I, I I didn't remember his name, but I went and looked up Willie Garson because he appears in every X-Files and uh, uh. he's in, any, if it's shot in Canada and it's genre, he's in it. <laughs> uh, he's he's usually a, uh, 
a guest star. Yeah. So it's really fun in this show to see that he got he landed a character yeah, that a he right, had for the whole character. run of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I first became aware of him. He was on Stargate SG-1 as an alien oh. from another planet who became famous on Earth for writing stories based upon his real life. Beautiful. Delightful. Classic. Willie Garst. So he is revealed as, you know, an old buddy from the criminal world. The first thing Neil asks him is, can you get this ankle bracelet off? And he, he goes, oh, absolutely not. That's some high tech shit. You're in the big games now. Yeah. I can't. You, you flew you too high, that. Icarus. Yeah. He actually says, you flew too close to the sun and they burned your wings. <laughs> uh, it's what's weird also that he goes like, why are you hiding in the shadows? Like, how did you get in? And he goes, I use this and holds up his fist. And then goes, I knocked on the door. June let me in. She's nice. <laughs> and, and of course, drops a reference to, did you get a load of the granddaughter? The oh, granddaughter. The like, amenities. Like, did you get a load of the jag? Ugh, gross. But they oh. have a little chat. And Neil asks Moz to help him find information about this forger. He also says, I need your help finding Kate. And even though Neil promised Peter that he was not going to search for Kate... He says, I told you earlier on the bottles meant goodbye or whatever. So he tells him, I need you to help me find Kate. She might be in France. I know that's not much to go on, but just take a look. See if you can find her. So Maz says, okay, I'll help you out. The next morning, we see Peter getting ready for the day. He's like poking around trying to find out stuff about his wife. He gets a call and someone says, Neil's pinged his tracker. He's left the two mile radius. He's on the lamb. He starts bolting down the stairs, shouting to his wife, Elizabeth, I gotta, I gotta go. Neil's pinged his tracker. And there he sees his wife and Neil sitting on the couch in the living room, drinking coffee, giggling together, just having a little fun. And he is a little furious, but the wife is very like, oh, he's harmless. He's so fun. It's a little bit of an annoying scene, but at least during that scene, Neil shows him that he's figured out who the forger is because the forger signed the bond with the initial CH and the forger is named Curtis Hagen, Curtis Hagen. Yeah. Thank you. Which he managed to figure out because uh, the bond, it's not just a document. It has a beautiful piece of art on it, a painting they establishes by Goya. And this guy is a Goya restorer, but his own artwork never took off. And Neil says, that's the thing about being a forger, is you can never show off your work. You can never get any accolades. The whole point is for nobody to know that you did anything. So both being a restorer and a forger are similar in that way. And he points out, I know what that's like. I signed mine. I was just better at it and I didn't get caught. Right. Conveniently, he's also found out that this guy is currently doing a restoration of a painting at a church in the city. So they head down to the church. There's a fun moment of not very good con man flim flam where he convinces this priest, even though the church is closed for restorations, that they need to be in there. Basically convinces him that Peter is having a crisis of faith and is going to cheat on his wife. He's not that good a con man in this scene. They keep... No giving him moments to be a con man, and then he's bad at it. But they get a chance to take a closer look at the painting, and they find a similar signature with a CH that you need a magnifying glass and a mirror because it's backwards. And Peter's not totally convinced, but he's like, yeah, it's there. Then, who should stroll up? But Mark Shepard. Mark Shepard, everybody's favorite supporting actor. 
Mr. Growly British voice villain guy. Yeah. Shows up as Hagen and says, uh, excuse me, get out of my church, basically. They have a little chat where he goes, you look familiar. Have I seen you on TV to Neil? And Neil goes, oh, no, I don't think so. Uh, but they have a little back and forth moment where Neil's obviously having a little bit of a dick measuring contest with this guy. Uh, and then they, he says, well, this church is closed, so leave. So they leave. As they're arriving at the office, Neil reveals to Peter that he's still looking for Kate. He found yeah. a photo of her that she was uh, somewhere in San Diego. And he, you know, yeah, we've got to go look for I her. I think Moz is the one who gave him the photo, yeah, though, right? Moz gave him the photo. Yeah, I'm not sure about the timeline here, but it's not important. But he says something about he found her because the photo of Kate that he found is from an ATM. And in the picture, which is a little blurry, there's a man's hand on Kate's shoulder and it zooms in on it. So we are shown that Neil is looking at that hand and the hand has a very distinctive ring on it. And Neil says something during this conversation about he found her. They gloss over it and he's really like, look, you got to let it go, man. The girl left you, right? Yeah. And it's clear to me, at least, that Neil is trying to play this off as if I just have to find her because I love her, because I'm a lovelorn fool who can't accept that a woman left me. But I actually feel that they're playing a slightly deeper game, and Neil believes there's something else going on. Right. So right before they go inside, Neil sees Maz having a cigarette out in front of the FBI building and goes up to him. Uh, Maz passes him a message inside a cigarette. It's very clever. He's, they have like a fun little interaction. Yeah. Jones, the other FBI agent, we haven't mentioned at this point, he doesn't get to do a lot in this episode. Hopefully he gets more later, but he's the other member of their team. He's standing right next to them and they're not being super subtle. He's like, hey, can I bum a cigarette? Sure. Those things will kill you. They act like they're speaking in code. Yeah, it's it's really cute. It's and cute. it's kind of, it's played for laughs, which yeah. is a it's nice actually, little comedic moment. Yeah. Moz is actually kind of a fun character in that moment it sort of made me want to see more of Moz in the rest of the show so once uh they are inside the fbi office neil unrolls the paper and finds the the address to a warehouse that hagen owns through a shell company it's all very uh, suspicious and peter starts to question at this point where are you getting this information and neil's like well i rely on rumor a lot more than you do right. they go to the warehouse and establish that oh yeah we can overhear they're running printing presses in there but we can't do anything about it and here's a moment where they have a thing where he goes why can't we just run in there we know he's in there and peter goes we can't walk into private property just because we hear some printing presses we need something more concrete right warrant right? law and he throws the book at Neil. He literally a, throws the book at him. Yeah. And jokingly says, it's called Warrant Law. Read it. And then we immediately cut to a scene where he is literally at home at June's house reading the book of Warrant Law in a pair of silk pajama pants and no shirt. Because the sh show apparently decided that the granddaughter is not enough eye candy and we needed Neil to be shirtless as well. I, I was pleased. <laughs> it was all right. So. Pepe clearly never met a full body shave he didn't like. I, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> June introduced him to her who to her spa. Yeah, yeah. They probably had some spa dates together. Yeah. So Neil finds something in the book of Warrant Law that makes him go, aha. And he jumps up, grabs the keys to the jag, and presumably gets dressed, but we don't see him get dressed. Next thing well, we wouldn't see. Well, wouldn't it be great if he showed up in just the slick pajama pants? But anyway, he shows up, we see him at the warehouse. 
jumps out. There's a bunch of suspicious looking guys who weren't there the other day. No. <laughs> patrolling. He jumps out with the camera and just starts taking pictures willy nilly, not subtly at all. Yeah. And the guys are like, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm taking a photography class. And they grab him, drag him inside because he's acting purposefully suspicious. As soon as they drag him in, uh, he sees the printing press, the piles yeah. of bail, like bail bonds getting made. The yeah, the, Snow the, White the books, books that they're carrying, the paper, everything's there. They throw him into the boss's office and then leave him in there to go get the boss. And, and Neil he locks, locks himself. himself in. Yeah. Meanwhile, Meanwhile <laughs> we cut to uh, Peter's house where he gets a call. Neil's on the run and they jump into action to go find him. But Peter, they tell Peter where Neil's pinged. He knows where Neil's gone. Yeah. He gets it immediately. Yeah, he figures it out. He knows the game. So then we go back to the warehouse where Curtis, Hagen, and Neil are having a pissing contest through the glass, shouting at each other. And he's like, you know, I'm going to kill you. You know that, right? And then all of a sudden, the doors fly open and Peter struts in dick first, saying, this is what's called exigent circumstance. Does anybody know what that is, Diana? And she goes, well, as a matter of fact. And as they're doing this, you know, other agents are filing in. They're arresting everybody. They're they're taking all the evidence. Meanwhile, Diana explains, well, it means that if a suspect, a fleeing fugitive is found inside private property, we are allowed to enter without a warrant. And if we happen upon any evidence of another crime, even an unrelated one, in plain sight, the way literally all of this is, we're allowed to confiscate it, even though it has nothing to do with the crime we were investigating. There's a nice moment where... Uh, earlier, right before they burst in, where he's Neil is in this fancy, very fancy office inside this warehouse that obviously Curtis, needing to puff himself up, has built this beautiful with an antique desk and a fucking harp for some reason. Oh. He sits in his fancy leather chair, Neil does, props his feet up on the desk, pulls his pant leg slightly down, and reveals the tracker. That's right. the moment where they run in. That was actually nicely shot. It's very nicely shot. So anyway. Bit of action. Everything is resolved now. They have all of the evidence they need and they did it legally, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah. So in the next, I believe the next scene. Right. Peter finally figured out that his wife was into going to like well, Jamaica. Or she was obsessed with the idea of going to some beautiful tropical, tropical place. And the dumb thing is that then in this cute little scene, he references, you know how you and I are always joking about wanting to go to the Caribbean? Really? You're you're always joking about that? And that didn't come to mind when Neil asked you what your wife likes? Really? <laughs> you know what? We're constantly joking about this, but I didn't remember it until just now. But anyway, bad writing. But it's a cute moment where he blindfolds Elizabeth and brings her to, for no reason, the rooftop patio. No reason except that they already had that set. Right. Well, it's it's also care. It's no reason that it's that specific place, but it's kind of this nice little moment that Neil has given Peter a little bit of a taste of this kind of life, and he's he's facilitated Peter having this nice kind of whimsical romantic moment with his wife, and Peter has gone along with it and allowed Neil to help him in this way. And also, and they already had the set. Right, but it's a ni- it's it's a nice little character payoff yeah. of Peter kind of loosening up just a little bit but because. The- Oh, go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to say, because the place, the fancy place that they're going to go stay is a villa that the FBI confiscated from a drug lord or something. We're getting ahead of ourselves because, so what they do is they show up at the pad, the rooftop patio, which has been decorated with palm trees and string lights. And he turns on a CD of like, um, tropical music, tropical music. And he basically goes, you know what? We're always saying we're going to go to the Caribbean. Well, this is pretty close. And it's like, Oh, how cute. He made them a fake Caribbean thing. And then they sit down next to a little fire pit and she, he, he's like, it's almost as good. And she's like, yes, it's very sweet. And then he whips out the real prize, which is maybe this will be even better. And he's got them two tickets to the Caribbean. They're actually going away for a whole week. Yes. That is actually a very good anniversary gift. Yes. A trip to the Caribbean for a week, which apparently they've been talking about for years and he never found the time, quote unquote. So I think we're supposed to think here that, look, his life has been improved by Neil being his friend. He is finally doing the thing that he always wanted to do, which is going to improve his marriage by by taking his wife away on a vacation because Neil helped him figure out that his wife wanted to go on vacation. Wow. Genius work there, Neil. It's. It's, it's clearly supposed to be, look, Neil did good, but again, Neil did nothing. That's one of my problems with the show overall, is Neil does very little, but he's like, oh, look how good he did. Anyway. Yeah. So the next morning, Burke arrives at the rooftop patio. To get some of that delicious coffee they keep joking about. And he gives him a badge and says, well, we figured if we didn't give you one of these, you would have made yourself one anyway. And it looks like Neil and Burke are going to be working together for a while and solving some cases. Yeah. And says, hey, you're a consultant and I own you for four years. So Neil's working with the FBI. All right, let's talk cliffs and ships. Cliffs and ships. Uh, what do we think is going to be the first season cliffhanger or big plot resolution? I think it's obviously going to be his search for Kate, yeah. his girlfriend. That's clearly like the through line plot of the whole season. Yeah. Kind of the season's B plot, even while we're having our procedural FBI shenanigans. Yeah, which I'm realizing is actually not as common as I was thinking it was for there to be an obvious hint in the pilot of what the overarching uh, theme for the first season is going to be. Yeah. Spoiler, we've watched a few other episodes before we recorded this episode zero and the other ones we've watched, none of them has had as clear a this is what the first season is going to be about head nod as this episode of White Collar with this mystery about the girlfriend and the mysterious hand with the mysterious ring that was on her shoulder that Neil seems to have recognized. And cause he says something about he's got her. I can't yeah. remember when he says that, but he definitely says he found her first or something like yeah. that. I think that's what it is. He says, I found her, but he found her first. And it seems like, yeah, he recognizes that ring. He's not telling Peter cause he lets Peter think it's just, I just can't accept that she left me. It seems like there's more going on there, and that's what the whole first season is going to be about. Yeah, I was expecting when sort of the search for Kate was introduced that that was going to resolve within the first, within the pilot episode, and then Kate would be another character ongoing. Like, she would also be a criminal consultant kind of a thing. And then, you know, towards the end of the episode where you realize she's not going to show up and she's just out there somewhere. Yeah. 
and I'm, I'm kind of wondering if she's going to become part of the carrot that Peter can use to like man- keep Neil under control. It's like, oh, I'll help you find some more info about where Kate went. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Kind of a thing. Like that will become a thing in their relationship ongoing. Yeah, I could, I could see that. I could see that. As far as ships... I don't know. So so Peter and Elizabeth are married. Yeah. <laughs> I would I would really like their relationship to develop some chemistry beyond yeah, being told that they have chemistry. Yeah, their relationship is admittedly pretty boring. It, the way it it was written like they wanted them to be a fun couple that has fun interactions. It didn't really play off on screen. As well, especially with all the stuff in the script about him going Oh, my wife's like sports. Isn't that neat? Well, what else does she like? I don't fucking know. You know, please tell me he develops into a better character who actually understands his wife because it's very disheartening to watch a show where I'm supposed to like. Clearly, you're supposed to like Peter. He's a likable guy. He's written to be likable, except that he's been married to a woman for 10 years and does not know anything about her. That's that's depressing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I get that it's like this character idea that he has a blind spot when it comes to his wife and he's a brilliant investigator and he gets inside the minds of criminals or something. But at the same time, he just it, it really undermines, I think, our view of his competence. Yeah. Just in a general life. Yeah. It's one thing to be, oh, he can see a, a criminal's moves ahead of the criminal, but he forgot his own anniversary. All right. That's one thing. Forgetting yeah. your own anniversary, man, I forget what day it is all the time. That's fine. I'm not yeah. going to judge someone for forgetting a birthday or an anniversary. But then when you realize it is the anniversary and you go, I don't know what to get her because I don't know anything she likes, then we have a problem. Yeah. The only thing I can think of that she likes is the thing I also like that I think it's weird for women to like. So I think that makes her a cool chick or <laughs> whatever. It's, it's really strange. Yeah. I would be fine with her being really into sports and liking to go to sports, but his reaction to it is like he's found the holy grail of all the one woman in all of New York who likes the sports ball. It's, it's, no, it's ridiculous. Yeah. A a woman who likes sports, that's not unusual and it's not weird and it wouldn't be weird for the character. It's, it's only how he reacts to it that is strange. And I hope they drop that kind of attitude. I hope that was just a bad line in the pilot. You never yeah. know. But other than their relationship, hopefully getting a little more re- realistic and nice. I Yeah, I know because we looked at the Wikipedia to remind ourselves of the characters' names. I know that Diana gets a girlfriend later. Oh. Becomes a regular character. Oh, I'm sorry. You didn't see that. I'm sorry. No, I didn't see that. But that's, that's <clears throat> happy news. Yeah, I was actually like, oh, good. It's not always going to be a wink and a nod that she, you know, would rather be wearing the hat. Like, apparently she's actually going to be quantifiably gay in the show apparently she has a named quantifiably gay like a (laughs) 6.5 on the zero to liberace scale (laughs) yeah apparently she gets a girlfriend who is in the show enough that she's listed in the wikipedia page with a character name and a character summary of a few sentences so that's good to know so That's I exciting. ship them ahead of time. Good, good. That gives me hope that they're not going to do the whole like, well, Neil keeps flirting with her anyway because Hope Springs Eternal and they have a little bit of a fun. I hope that they have a fun rapport, the two yeah. of them, Neil and Diana. But I hope it's not played up too flirtily. And the fact that she eventually gets a girlfriend gives me hope that it won't be. But maybe in the first season it still will. I didn't look at what season the girlfriend right. shows up. Yeah, in terms of Cliffs and Ships, I have like a totally weird like headcanon fan theory 
Oh, we can cu- we can cut this out if it's if do it's no good. tell. But that Neil is like he's not a particularly sexual person, and all of his flirting and everything is like this weird, like second nature mechanism of his cons and his right. like his sort of moving his whimsical fuckery. Yeah, that like he has no intent on following through with anything. Even his relationship with Kate is like this very like not. Like, it's interesting that he talks about, like, he loves her, but even some of the dialogue around his talk of his love for her and his care for her is so non-romantic. And part of it is probably just the weird way the character is playing the scenes. But I think it's also bad writing, but yeah. I am absolutely happy to take bad writing and come up with a in-universe justification for it, which I totally buy. Neil, not especially sexual person, mostly obsessed with Kate in a psychological obsessive way right where he's like but she's the one and she's the girlfriend and therefore we be together yeah. and she's the she's the girl to the guy that i am and that's so, therefore we must be together but it doesn't go below that like intellectual like concept right it's like she is I like his cons partner and yeah. that's why he needs to get back to hers because like we're better at the conning together and <gasps> like that is why like even he kind of has lost the like he's just like whatever bring me back to jail and then he has this moment of being like oh wait i can go off on whimsical fuckery adventures with peter he will be a friend like yeah i will with peter oh yeah the the relationship between neil and peter flipped back and forth between like oh my god just kiss and thanks dad you know (laughs) yeah the the relationship between them was like they could almost couldn't decide what kind of uh energy or what kind of relationship they wanted them to have there's moments where he's like almost looking to him for approval like a yeah. father figure and there's moments where like you guys are flirting right now i need you to stop yeah <laughs> it's it's all over the place and that that's another one of like the contributors to my theory of neil being this like asexual person who isn't really thinking on that level who's yeah. just like oh and this is when i wink yeah yeah, I look at the person like, oh, I have, um, he meets Diana for the first time and he immediately puts on the bedroom eyes and yeah. it's like goes into the thing and he refers to it. It's like a dance. I'm sure that the writers meant that to support him as like a very flirty sexual guy, but I actually love reading it as, oh, it's like a dance. He actually does think that it's it's it is just like a dance where you meet someone and you go, ah, now we do the dance, but it, it doesn't go, oh, I am attracted to this person. I want to. I have an end goal. Right. No, nope, we're just doing the dance. Right. Oh. <laughs> I love this. I accept this headcanon. I don't yes. know if it will be supported in the rest of the show, but I like it. Yeah. Uh, I think at some point there will be a really fun role reversal episode where Neil will be very like playing by the rules and Peter will go <laughs> way off the deep end and oh, do some it. crazy shenanigans. Uh, I hope so. I hope so. Oh, I hope they do a Moz-centric episode at some point uh-huh. where... Because it seems like they're setting up Maz as very much a... He doesn't get a lot of his own personality or a lot of his own backstory. He mostly shows up to provide Neil with information that Neil needs to, yeah. for his whimsical fuckery. He's plot guy. Yeah. But I hope that eventually they have this weird Maz-centric episode that actually follows Maz through the through the whole thing and shows how he gets his information. Wouldn't that be great? And you only get to find out about the case uh-huh. that Peter and Neil are working through True. what they ask right. Moz for. So you never actually find out what the case is. You only find Neil shows up every so often and goes, Hey Moz, I need to know where this uh 
this hotel gets their sheets washed or whatever. Right. <laughs> like he needs some information and Moz goes off and gets that information. And in the process of that runs into all sorts of other silly characters. It would read like a backdoor pilot for a Moz show, but oh I just, I don't want it to be a whole Moz show. Right. I just want that one episode. He just goes home and like spends five minutes Googling it and then takes <laughs> the rest of the night off. And then the next yeah. morning like encodes it into a little secret message that like he gives to Neil with great pomp. Yeah, but it's just where he, like... he spends all of his time just figuring out how to get the note inside the cigarette. Right. The actual information took him five minutes on Google. <laughs> Moss's entire life is just like trying to find clever ways to give information to Go- Neil. Googling things for yes. all the other characters who haven't figured out Google exists yet. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. Oh, I really hope that they eventually do a... Not not a flashback episode, but I'm trying to think of a good name for this kind of episode because it's happened on a lot of shows where they're investigating a case that like took place a long time ago. Somebody finds a journal and they're uh-huh. like like from somebody from a long time ago, and the episode is half the characters in real time and half uh, it reenactments of the events of the past. But with all the actors from the show in period clothes. Oh my goodness, that'd be so fun. Yeah, they did a great, they did an okay one on Bones. They did a really good one on Castle. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, I'm a sucker for it. I love that. And because the cast always is clearly having a fucking ball. They all get to do funny accents and wear period clothes and be a little bit different from who they normally are. And I freaking love those episodes. And I would love to see White Collar do one of those. I could be wrong. Yeah. But I also believe that at some point this show got a musical episode. Oh, I don't know how I feel about that. I love a musical episode, but like a white collar musical yeah. episode. Although I, I would love to see uh <laughs> I would love to Jesus. see Tim dance. Uh Peter. Yeah. I would love to see that. Because huh. I I think he's got some moves, but everybody else I just don't know. Uh, uh yeah. Huh. <sighs> any other cliffs and chips? Other than hoping that Jones actually gets a personality and a and a backstory at one point, which I, I'm sure he'll get more. He's definitely not given a lot of time in the pilot, but there's always at least uh, one or two characters who don't get a lot of time in the pilot, but they'll get more later. Yeah, June is the same way. Yeah. There's a lot hinted at that could be really interesting and fun to explore. Yeah, I would love to see more of June, certainly. Oh, that's what the flashback episode could be. Oh. June tells Neil a story about, she tells the story of how she met Byron and Uh Diana would play June and Neil would play Byron. If that doesn't happen, get me a freaking time machine and get me to Hollywood. Get me the ear of one of the white collar writers. NBC, call us. Yeah. NBC in the past, call us. (laughs) Like, white collar, wait, is this show still on the, it's not still on the air, is it? I don't know. How many seasons did it run for and when? I just realized I don't actually know. It's, it ran for at least four seasons. Let's go to the Google. Okay, the Google has informed us it was not NBC, it was USA, which I'm not going to lie, makes a lot of sense. My bad. <laughs> it's, this is totally a USA show. And we have determined that the show ran for six complete seasons ending in December of 2014. Yeah, so get me a time machine is what I'm saying. Yeah. If that didn't happen, if that episode never occurred, I'm going to be real disappointed. It, it would be running still if we were in charge of it, I think oh, is, yeah. is what we're trying to say. If that one episode had happened, it would have saved the show. It would oh, still be on the air. Oh, my God. Oh, that would be so good. Oh, I want to see that episode now. Oh. This is the first time we've since we've been recording the show that I actually like dreamed up of episode that probably doesn't exist that I really want to see. 
Oh, I just want to see her go, well, when Byron and I first met. And then it fades. Forget any character oh. pairings. I ship you and that episode. <laughs> Me too. Me too. OTP. OTP. Oh. Yeah. So. I think that's uh, that's it for our close and ships. That kind of wraps it up. I mean, that flashback episode says it all. Indeed. You, you could want for nothing else. So. Final verdict, Sarah. Final verdict. Did the pilot do the job of a pilot? Do you want to watch more episodes? Yes. I'm torn. I kind of do. I kind of don't. It did the job of a pilot in the sense that I'm interested enough in the characters that I kind of want to see where they go with the characters. So good job on that. But some of the writing was so bad, it doesn't give me a lot of confidence that the rest of the show will be satisfying. Yeah, I, f- I feel very similar. I feel like this show might end up being a filler program for me when I'm, you know, waiting for more seasons of The Blacklist yeah. or something like that, where it's like, uh, kind of has the whole criminal on the right side of the law working to catch other criminals vibe that I enjoy. And it also has Peter Burke, who I'm just kind of a fan of that actor in general and also Moz I could I would stick around for the Moz yeah I could do with more Moz stay for the Moz I could do with more Moz for sure yeah I I, it might become the kind of show that like I'm gonna add it to my Netflix list and when I'm having one of those nights where I'm scrolling through my Netflix list feeling kind of listless and I'm like I don't feel like watching anything in particular it'll be the thing I settle on because I'm like I guess I'll watch an episode of White Collar which NCIS has already become that for me yeah so, yeah, I, I'd say it's sort of a, like, a curious from both of us. Yeah. Might Just watch a, a few more. more, and it'll depend a lot on the quality of those next few episodes, whether I continue after that. But I guess the pilot at least did the job of making me kind of go, I'm interested in these characters and how they interact, and I could do to see more of that. I think that the clincher for me is I will probably look up and see how many more episodes Mark Shepard appears in. Because he does appear in more episodes. Yeah, he was in the cast list on the Wikipedia. Yes. So if he's a more regular thing, that could be my bum in a seat. Yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm a bit torn about Mark Shepard. I like him. I like him as an actor. But sometimes he annoys me. And I don't think it's his fault. But like on Leverage, for example... Mm-hmm. Every time he would show up, I'd get annoyed. I'm like, I should be happy. It's a episode. It's an episode with Mark Shepard. Why aren't I pleased? But this character drives me bonkers. And I feel like this character would have the potential to be annoying to me the way that um, Jim Sterling on, on Leverage was always ah. kind of annoying to me. Yeah, Mark Shepard is definitely annoying. He he. I had to wait behind him at a coffee house once while he ordered coffee. And he took a little bit too long. So, you know, I can't tell if annoying. you're... I'm making I'm seri- up a I'm ridiculous serious. scenario. No. There's, a, there's a coffee shop in Bellingham called The Black Drop, which uh, certain members of the Supernatural cast, it's like a, a secret thing among members of the cast of that show. They will come down to Bellingham and get some coffee there. And really? I have seen Mark Shepard there. As well I didn't as, realize that show was shot in Vancouver. Yes, at least some of the time. Yeah. I guess for people listening to the podcast who do not live in Washington... Bellingham is north of Seattle and south of Vancouver. It's not terribly uncommon for people to drive to Bellingham from Vancouver. It's not an unreasonable distance. Well, there you go. Wow, you've uh, you've waited in line for coffee behind Mark Shepard. I, I can't have. believe I'm just learning this about you live on the podcast. Yeah, well, you know, all kinds of things happen. Yeah. All right. Well, we will see you all 
next time on Pilot, Pilot House. House. Pilot House. Theme song in the bank. All right, perfect. We did it. Well, that was White Collar. Thank you, everybody, for listening to our very first Very Messy episode. And now here's Sarah with a few addendums and corrections. Two things. Uh, one, we were completely wrong about the numbers on the combination. I'm sorry we spent so much time trying to get the numbers correct because we thought it was important. And then we were still wrong. Neither of us thought to just look at a phone, which is literally what they do in the episode. So apologies to anyone who knows how to spell FBI on a phone and was really annoyed with us. Second correction, Tim Decay and Tiffany Tyson are 11 years apart. I was right. It is weird. That is not an unusual distance of time between a couple, but it is cliche as heck. So I was correct in that assumption. I looked it up on the internet later. Well, thanks again for listening. Our next episode is going to be going up on December 9th, 2017. So if it's before that, make sure you subscribe so that you'll see it when it drops. And of course, you can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. It really helps us out if you do. I hear all the other podcasts saying that, so I'm assuming it's true. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Pilot House Podcast is brought to you in part by Laudable.com, the website where only books by Nobel Peace laureates are read to you by only people who have been nominated for Academy Awards. Laudable.com. Audiobooks for pretentious people.